0: Welcome to Trifecta Now, Living A Course in Miracles. This is season five, and it's called The Book Club. Chapter four, welcome back. Today is my youngest son's 18th birthday. I've spoken a lot about him throughout my podcast with his infinite wisdom as a spiritually connected soul. He radiates joy wherever he goes and with whomever he meets. I'm not sure that anyone could really dislike him if they tried. I am so blessed to have his lessons be mine and his spirit teach me how to see this world exactly how it was meant to be seen, not through our body's eyes, but through spiritual vision. My father also celebrated his birthday this month, a couple of weeks ago, his 82nd birthday. So I'd like to say happy birthday to both of them and happy birthday to all of you hoping everyone's birth celebrations are reminders of our choice to join this world and start another journey. So let's begin. We are on chapter four, which is on page 52. And this chapter is called The Illusions of the Ego. This week we'll cover the introduction, right teaching and right learning, the ego and false autonomy, love without conflict, and this need not be. I'm only covering five sections, as I've said before, at a time, which will keep us in the 30-minute range. There's a lot to digest. There's a lot to take in. So I just want to cover that much each time. I'll read out specific pieces to help facilitate a better understanding of what is written. We'll pick up chapter four in two weeks and then move into chapter five. So let's begin. On page 52, Introduction paragraph one says the Bible says that you should go with a brother twice as far as he asks. It certainly does not suggest that you set him back on his journey. Devotion to a brother cannot be set back either. It can lead only to mutual progress. The result of genuine devotion is inspiration. A word which properly understood is the opposite of fatigue. To be fatigued is to be dispirited, but to be inspired is to be in the spirit. To be egocentric is to be dispirited, but to be self-centered is the right sense, in the right sense, sorry, is to be inspired or in spirit. The truly inspired are enlightened and cannot abide in darkness. Paragraph two starts with, you can speak from the spirit or from the ego. You choose which one. If you speak from spirit, you've chosen to be still and know that I am God, end quote. Paragraph three starts with, the journey to the cross should be the last useless journey. Do not dwell upon it, but dismiss it as accomplished. If you can accept it as your own last useless journey, you are also free to join my resurrection. Until you do so, your life is indeed wasted. It merely reenacts the separation, the loss of power, the futile attempts of the ego at reparation, and finally the crucifixion of the body or death. Such repetitions are endless until they are voluntarily given up. Do not make the pathetic error of clinging to the old rugged cross." the only message of the crucifixion is that you can overcome the cross. Until then, you are free to crucify yourself as often as you choose. This is not the gospel I intended to offer you. We have another journey to undertake. And if you will read these lessons carefully, they will help prepare you to undertake it. That's the end of the introduction. So that's a lot to take in for that introduction. But what it's just telling you from the beginning is that it's really important to understand that we need to meet our brothers and sisters equally from the same position without judgment and without any kind of decisions as to what their journey should be. The other last part of that section talks about the crucifixion and the resurrection. And Christ is trying to tell us that The biggest mistake we made, and religions have made, is the emphasis on the crucifixion of Christ. Christ didn't have to be crucified. Christ had the power to stop it. The point was, and and so did God, but the point was not to stop it. The point was to let us see that we are not about bodies, that the bodies don't mean anything. The message was the cruci. Sorry, the message was the resurrection, not the crucifixion. They wanted Christ and God wanted us to see that we are eternal beings, that our bodies are not important. The next section on page fifty-three starts with right teaching and right learning. A good teacher. Paragraph one starts with, a good teacher clarifies his own ideas and strengthens them strengthens them by teaching them. Teacher and pupil are alike in the learning process. They are in the same order of learning, and unless they share their lesson's conviction will be lacking. A good teacher must believe in the ideas he teaches, but he must meet another condition. He must believe in the students to whom he offers the ideas. Paragraph two starts with, many stand guard over their ideas because they want to protect their thought systems as they are. And learning means change. Change is always fearful to the separated because they cannot conceive of it as a move towards healing the separation. Sentence six, a little further down says, nothing can reach spirit from the ego and nothing can reach the ego from spirit. Spirit can neither strengthen the ego nor reduce the conflict within. The ego is a contradiction. Your self and God's self are in opposition. They are opposed in source, in direction, and in outcome. They are fundamentally irreconcilable because spirit cannot perceive and ego cannot know. They are therefore not in communication and can never be in communication. Now I'm going to stop here for a second because that's a lot. So first, the part about the teacher, and it was so interesting that because as a teacher, I was reading this as a teacher from that perspective. And then as I've read this book many times, I come to realize that what they're talking about is every one of us are teachers and every one of us are learners. So if we approach teaching others, in the same mindset as we approach learning, then the, the transmission back and forth is equal. And that's what it's trying to stay, say here is that it needs to be on equal grounds. Now, this part about ego and spirit being in contradiction is basically saying that we, as long as we see ourselves as egos, as long as we see ourselves as body, then we're going to have great difficulty seeing ourselves as God seeing ourselves as one with God. And that's when it says we're in opposition with God. The self that we've created is in opposition with God right now. Not the spirit part of us. We're in unison. We're equal. We are one. But the part of us in this world that we think we are, the bodies, that's in opposition with God. So paragraph three says, spirit need not be taught, but the ego must be. Learning is ultimately perceived as frightening because it leads to the relinquishment, not the destruction of the ego to the light of spirit. This is the change the ego must fear because it does not share my charity. My lesson, like yours, was like yours, and because I learned it, I can teach it. We're talking about Christ. That was his lesson, right? His lesson when he was here. I will never attack your ego, but I am trying to teach you how its thought system arose. sorry, when I remind you of your true creation, your ego cannot but respond with fear. Paragraph four, teaching and learning are your greatest strengths now because they enable you to change your mind and help others to change theirs. And that was the whole part about the teaching at the beginning is as a teacher, you want to share information and share how you see the world if you see it in those through those same, same eyes, and through doing that, that's how you help people change. Can't make people change. That's their journey. The next page, page 54, sentence seven at the top says, if you are willing to renounce the role of guardian of your thought system and open it to me, I will correct it very gently and lead you back to God. Paragraph five says, every good teacher hopes to give his students so much of his own learning That they will one day no longer need him. This is the one true goal of the teacher. Paragraph, uh, sorry, sentence five in paragraph five says It is natural for the ego to try to protect itself once you have made it, but it is not natural for you to want to obey its laws unless you believe them. The ego cannot make this choice because of the nature of its origin. You can because of the nature of yours. We're not egos, we're spirits. And the minute we can shift our perception away from our ego minds and back to our spirit minds, that's when we'll understand our true nature. Paragraph six says egos can clash in any situation, but spirit cannot clash at all. If you perceive a teacher as merely a larger ego, you will be afraid because to enlarge an ego would be to increase anxiety about separation. I will teach you, I, sorry, I will teach with you and live with you if you will think with me, but my goal will always be to absolve you finally from the need for a teacher. That's the ultimate goal is once we learned the lessons we came here to learn, we won't need a teacher anymore. Paragraph seven says at the bottom of that same page, 54 says, your worth is not established by teaching or learning. Your worth is established by God. As long as you dispute this, everything you do, as long as you dispute this, everything you do will be fearful, particularly any situation that leads itself to the belief in superiority and inferiority. Teachers must be patient and repeat their lessons until they are learned. I am willing to do this because I have no right to set your learning limits for you. Again, nothing you do or think or wish or make is necessary to establish your worth. This point is not debatable, except in delusions. Your ego is never at stake because God did not create it. Paragraph eight at the bottom starts with the ego tries to exploit all situations into forms of praise for itself, next page, in order to overcome its doubts. It will remain doubtful as long as you believe in its existence. Sentence six, a little bit further down says, when you are afraid, be still and know that God is real and you are his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. Do not let your ego dispute this because the ego cannot know what is as far beyond its reach as you are. Paragraph 9 says, God is not the author of fear, you are. Sentence 4 says, you are not at peace because you are not fulfilling your function. God gave you a very lofty function that you are not meeting. Your ego has chosen to be afraid instead of meeting it. Paragraph 10 says, the ego is afraid of the spirit's joy because once you have experienced it, you will withdraw all protection from the ego and become totally without investment in fear. Paragraph sentence five says, listen only to God who is incapable of deception as is the spirit he created. Release yourself and release others. So before I go on, just in the section we've I've been reading, you know, this is trying to get the message across c- really clearly that you are not your ego. We created our egos in this world, and through material gain and through the desire to be unique and individual and better than everyone else, we lost sight of who we truly are. We are spirits, we are not bodies. This book is going to say that so many times until you understand it and accept it to be the truth. This is where this is going. Um, When we're talking about the ego, the fear that you feel, the fear that comes into your bodies is all directed from the ego. It's not from spirit and it's certainly not from God. The book will tell us that the opposite of fear is love. If you're feeling fear, then love is not there. The next page, on page 56, at the top, sentence two says, Humility is a lesson for the ego, not for the spirit. Spirit is beyond humility because it recognizes its radiance and gladly sheds its light everywhere. The meek shall inherit the earth because their egos are humble. And this gives them truer perception. The Kingdom of Heaven is the right is the spirit's right whose beauty and dignity are far beyond doubt beyond perception and stand forever as the mark of the love of God for his creations who are wholly worthy of him and only of him. Nothing else is sufficiently worthy to be a gift for a creation of God himself and then the last thing I want to um talk about in this last section is, um, paragraph 13. The last sentence starts with number eight says, spirit is far beyond the need of your protection or mind. So remember this, and this is what it says here in this world, you need not have tribulation because I have overcome the world. That is why you should be of good cheer. So any fear any tribulation, any concerns, any sadness, any depression you have is only of this world. It's not who you truly are, and it's not what God has given us. It's what we have chosen to accept as part of our role in this world. And we can change that by changing our mind. The next section is called the ego and false autonomy. Paragraph one says, it is reasonable to ask how the mind could ever have made the ego. In fact, it's the best question you could ask. Paragraph two says, everyone makes an ego or a self for himself, which is subject to enormous variation because of its instability. He also makes an ego for everyone else he perceives, which is equally veritable. So not only do we make our, an ego for ourselves, but we make an ego for everyone else because we judge everybody else. And in judging them, we create an ego for them. Paragraph three says, on page 57 says, your own state of mind is a good example of how the ego was made. When you threw knowledge away, it is as if you never had it. Sentence six, a little bit further down says, but do not forget that the mind need not work that way, even though it does work that way now. Paragraph four starts with, think of the love of animals, of the love of animals have for their offspring, I think there's a little bit of an error there, and the need they feel to protect them. That is because they regard them as part of themselves. No one dismisses something he considers part of himself. Sentence seven further down says, the question is not how you respond to the ego, but what you believe you are. Belief is an ego function. And as long as your origin is open to belief, you are regarding it from an ego viewpoint. When teaching is no longer necessary, you will merely know God. Belief that there is another way of perceiving is the loftiest idea of which ego thinking is capable. That is because it contains a hint of recognition that the ego is not the self. Paragraph 5, sentence 4 says, you have no sense of real self-preservation and are likely to decide that you need precisely what would hurt you most. Yet, whether or not you recognize it now, you've agreed to cooperate in the effort to become more harmless and helpful attributes that must go together. Your, attributes even, your, sorry, your attitudes even towards this are necessarily conflicted because all attitudes are ego-based. This will not last. Be patient a while and remember that the outcome is as, next page, 58, certain as God. Paragraph six, sentence three says, to the ego, to give anything implies that you have to do without it. When you associate giving with sacrifice, you give only because you believe that you are somehow getting something better or can therefore do without the thing you give. Sentence five says, giving to get is an inescapable law of the ego, which always evaluates itself in relation to other egos. It is therefore continually continually preoccupied with the belief in scarcity that gave rise to it. Paragraph seven says the ego literally lives by comparisons. Equality is beyond its grasp and charity becomes impossible. The ego never gives out of abundance because it was made as a substitute for it. That is why the concept of getting arose in the ego's thought system. Appetites are getting mechanisms representing the ego's need to confirm itself. This is as true of body appetites appetites as it is of the so-called higher ego needs. Paragraph 8 says the ego believes it is completely on its own, which is merely another way of describing how it thinks it originated. This is such a fearful state that it can only turn to other egos and try to unite with them in a feeble attempt to at identification or attack them in an equally feeble show of strength. It is not free, however, to open the premise, sorry, strength. Yeah. It is not free, however, to open the premise to question because the premise is its foundation. Okay. So just to go over a little bit, they've talked a lot about the ego right here. So a couple things, the ego is always in it for getting something back, right? The ego gives to get back. That's the whole idea. You know, what goes around comes around. That's an ego thought system. You can say there's a Christian aspect to it, and there is because miracles, when you give miracles, you receive miracles. So that does how that goes around comes around. But the ego created that for the purpose of giving and getting. Um, they also the ego lives by comparison, absolutely. we're always in judgment, always judging our brothers and sisters, always comparing this person with that person this this idea with that idea, always looking at everything in comparison and then. The other part about the ego believes that it's totally on its own. And that's the other thing we created. We created this idea that as a, as an individual, as a separate and unique being, we are on our own. We stand alone. We're the lone wolf. That couldn't be further from the truth. And the further we go down that road, the further disconnected or dispirited we become. Because that's the opposite direction of heaven. You know, people talk about hell. Well, this is hell. This is the hell we created, and the closer and the more we go towards ego, the further into hell we go. We need to get to heaven by releasing the ego and letting it go. On the next page, fifty-nine, paragraph ten says, "Salvation is nothing more than right-mindedness, which is not the one-mindedness of the Holy Spirit, but which must be achieved before one-mindedness is restored. Right-mindedness leads." to the next step automatically because right perception is uniformly without attack and therefore wrong-mindedness is obliterated. The ego cannot survive without judgment and is laid aside accordingly. The mind then has only one direction in which it can move. Its direction is always automatic because it cannot but be dictated by the thought system to which it adheres. Uh, paragraph 11 says it cannot be emphasized too often that correcting perception is merely a temporary expedient it is not necessarily it is necessary only because misperception is a block to knowledge while accurate perception is a stepping stone towards it The whole value of right perception lies in the inevitable realization that all perception is unnecessary, because ultimately we want to move to knowledge, right? Where we understand who we truly are. Sentence four says, this moves the block entirely. You may ask how this is possible as long as you appear to be living in this world. That is a reasonable question. One must be careful, however, that you really understand it. Who is the you who are living in this world. Spirit is immortal, and immortality is a constant state. Interesting question there, right? Because we're asking, can we change this? Can we change this in this world? We're in this world. How can we change it in this world? Well, who are we? Truly, who are we? Once you can answer that question and understand that, then it won't be hard to see how you can change it in this world. On page 60, sentence 12 at the top says, knowledge never involves comparisons. That is its main difference from everything else the mind can grasp. So I went over that last section and talked about um, the different things the ego does. So I'm going to keep going. So the next section is called Love Without Conflict on page 60. I'm going to read the whole all of paragraph one and two. So you can follow along with me. It is hard to understand what the kingdom of heaven is within you really means. This is because it is not understandable to the ego, which interprets it as if something outside is inside. And this does not mean anything. The word within is unnecessary. The kingdom of heaven is you. What else but you did the creator create? And what else but you is his kingdom? This is the whole message of the atonement, a message which in its totality, transcends the sum of its parts. You too have a kingdom that your spirit created. It it has not ceased to create because of the ego's illusions. Your creations are no more fatherless than you are. Your ego and your spirit will never be co-creators, but your spirit and your creator will always be. Be confident that your creations are safe as you are. The kingdom is perfectly united and perfectly protected, and the ego will not prevail against it. Amen. This is written in the form of a prayer because it is useful in moments of temptation. It is a declaration of independence. You will find it very helpful if you understand it fully. The reason you need my help is because you have denied your own guide and therefore need guidance. My role is to separate the true from the false, so truth can break through the barriers the ego has set up and can shine into your mind. Against our united strength, the ego cannot prevail. So remember, that is a little prayer. The kingdom is perfectly united and perfectly protected. So we're talking about the kingdom in us, the spirit in us, and the ego will not prevail against it, that in the end, we are always spirit we will always be spirit. Even, well, particularly when we leave here, that's when we'll know for sure that's true. Paragraph three, sentence three, the ego must offer you some sort of reward for maintaining this belief. All it can offer is a sense of temporary existence, which begins with its own beginning and ends with its own ending. It tells you this life is your existence because it is its own. Against this sense of temporary existence, spirit offers you the knowledge of permanence and unshakable being. No one who has experienced the revelation of this can ever fully believe in the ego again. Paragraph four on on page 61 says, you who identify with ego cannot believe God loves you. Sentence four says, you cannot conceive of the real relationship that exists between God and his creations because of your hatred for the self you made. Sentence six says, no love in this world is without this ambivalence. And since no ego has experienced love without ambivalence, the concept is beyond its understanding. Paragraph five says, there is a kind of experience so different from anything the ego can offer you, sorry, offer that you will never want to cover or hide it again. It is necessary to repeat that your belief in darkness and hiding is why the light cannot enter. The Bible gives many references to the immeasurable gifts which are for you, but for which you must ask. This is not a condition as the ego sets conditions. It is the glorious condition of what you are. Paragraph six says, no force except your own will is strong enough or worthy enough to guide you. In this, you are as free as God and must remain so forever. Paragraph seven says, it has never really entered your mind to give up every idea you ever had that opposes knowledge. You retain thousands of little scraps of fear that prevent the Holy One from entering. Light cannot penetrate through the walls you make to block it, and it is forever unwilling to destroy what you've made. So this is a really good point. What you have to understand is free will is something that was given us. God will never step in and change that and take it over. He won't do that. He created us and gave us free will and sent us here, or we decided to come here to search out the lessons that we wanted to learn. He's not going to step in. He's not going to change it. He's going to let us choose. But what he wants us to know is that choice is right there, always for us. And he is right there, always for us. So uh, sentence seven at the bottom says, I will love you and honor you and maintain complete respect for you, for, sorry, for what you have made, but I will not uphold it unless it is true. So Christ says you can decide anything you want for yourself. However, and he will support you, but he's not going to uphold it. He's not going to stand beside you unless it's true. Um and then on page 61 at the bottom it says, "I will never and you t- change the page to change the page to 62. Forsake you any more than God will, but I must wait as long as you choose to forsake yourself because I wait in love and not in impatience, you will surely ask me truly. I will come in response to a single, unequivocal call. Paragraph nine says, in your own mind, though denied by the ego, is the declaration of your release. God has given you everything. This one fact means the ego does not exist, and this makes it profoundly afraid. In the ego's language, to have and to be are different, but they are identical to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows that you both have everything and are everything. Sentence seven says, that is why we make no distinction between having the kingdom of God and being the kingdom of God. So that's, uh, what is that one? (laughs) That's love without conflict. Okay, so the next section on page 62 at the bottom is this need not be, and this is the last part we'll cover. Paragraph one says, if you cannot hear the voice of God, it is because you do not choose to listen. That you do listen to the voice of the ego is demonstrated by your attitudes, your feelings, and your behavior. Yet this is what you want. This is what you are fighting to keep and what you are vigilant to save. Your mind is filled with schemes to save the face of your ego, and you do not seek the face of Christ. Next page, page 63, paragraph two, sentence two says, when your mood tells you that you have chosen wrongly, and this is so whenever you are not joyous, then know that this need not be. In every case you have thought wrongly about some brother God created and are perceiving images your ego makes in a darkened glass. Sentence nine, closer down, says, as a loving brother, I am deeply concerned with your mind and urge you to follow my example as you look at yourself and at your brother and see in both the glorious creations of a glorious father. Paragraph three says, when you are sad, no, this need not be. Depression comes from a sense of being deprived of something you want and not have. Remember that you are deprived of nothing except by your own decisions and then decide otherwise. Paragraph four says, when you are anxious, realize that anxiety comes from the capriciousness of the ego and know this need not be. You can be as vigilant against the ego's dictates as for them paragraph five says when you feel guilty remember that the ego has indeed violated the laws of god but you have not leave the sins of the ego to me that is what atonement is for but until you change your mind about those whom your ego has hurt the atonement cannot release you while you feel guilty your ego is in command because only the ego can experience guilt this need not be Paragraph six says, watch your mind for the temptations of the ego, and do not be deceived by it. It offers you nothing. Paragraph seven at the bottom, sentence two says, the problem is not one of concentration. It is the belief that no one, including next page, page 64, yourself is worth consistent effort. If we don't think you if, if we don't think we're worthy of this change, if we don't think that we're worthy of God, then we are not going to be worthy of God. And that's not because of God, that's because of ourselves. God is right there in us, always has been, always will be. Paragraph eight, sentence two says, there is no limit to the power of the Son of God, but he can limit the expressions of his power. Remember, we're talking about us when we say Son of God. But we can limit the expressions of his power as much as he chooses. Your mind and mine can unite in shining your ego away, releasing the strength of God into everything you think and do. Do not settle for anything less than this and refuse to accept anything but this as your goal. Sentence six says, Judge how well you have done this by your own feelings, for this is the one right use of judgment. Judge like any other judgment, like any other defense can be used to attack or protect, to hurt or to heal. Paragraph nine, sentence one says, you are a mirror of truth to which, in which God himself shines in perfect light. Paragraph 10 says, the first coming of Christ is merely another name for the, for the creation. For Christ is the son of God. The second coming of Christ means nothing more than the end of the ego's rule and the healing of the mind. I was created like you in the first, and I have called you to join me in the second. I am in charge of the second coming, and my judgment, which is used only for protection, cannot be wrong because it never attacks. Yours may be so distorted that you believe I was mistaken in choosing you." This is really big. I remember when I first read this. What Christ is saying is that when he came here to teach us about our eternal life and to teach us about who we truly were, that was the first coming. What he's suggesting in this book is the second coming. He's not coming back. Nobody's coming back. We are going to wake up. We are going to let go of our egos and understand that Christ and God and the Holy Spirit are in us as one, just as we are one with every other soul on this planet. And until we understand that, the second coming won't be coming. We have to get there in order for us to meet the second coming. Paragraph 11 on the next page, and it's the last paragraph that we'll cover tonight. In page 65, paragraph 11 says, I do not attack your ego. I do work with your higher mind, the home of the Holy Spirit, whether you are asleep or awake, just as your ego does with your lower mind, which is its home. I am your vigilance in this because you are too confused to recognize your own hope. I am not mistaken. Sentence nine, a little bit further down, says, "I do not believe that there is an order of difficulty in miracles. You do. I have called, and you will answer. I understand that miracles are natural because they are expressions of love. My calling you is as natural as your answer, and as inevitable. So that la- so this last part is just telling us that Christ is trying to make us understand." that he's here with us. And all we have to do is ask him to join us and to help us let go of the ego and move past this obsession we have with bodies and obsession we have with fears, with fear and see Christ and see God for who we truly are. Okay, so I'll be uploading Another episode in two weeks. And we're going to begin on page 65 with the ego body illusion. And we're going to be talking more about what we're talking about today. And then actually we'll move into chapter five as well, if I follow that same rule of five sections. All right. So I would like to end today by saying thank you for listening. And thank thank you again. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners from all over the world. United we stand and we always will because spiritually we are one and we have to remember that. I can be contacted by email at trifectanow3 at gmail.com. If you'd like to ask a question, share a comment, or just say hello. Thank you for joining me on this journey. Keep sharing the love. Remember this is our journey. Let us together find our way. Live in this moment. It's the only one that truly matters. Always love, Denise.